Hey, good morning, church. Uh, let's go to John chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 20 and read through verse 26. It's just a short little passage here, uh, but it packs a punch. There's a lot in here. So uh, go ahead and listen as I read it or follow along in your own Bibles. We're in John chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip told, came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus, but Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, we want to serve you because we want to be with you. Uh, and we want to be with you so that we can serve you better. We, we want to follow you and we want to behold your glory. And even as you say in this passage, the hour has come for you to be glorified. Um, God, in our flesh, we, we uh, are repelled by death and pain and and things like that, but when we see that you conquer those things, and we see that resurrection must be preceded by death, then Lord, we we, we move closer to this place of disregarding uh, just our flesh and just our temporal lives and clinging more firmly to the eternal. And I pray that would be the result of our time spent in your word, and that you would give us a stronger affection for eternal things, um, and that we would have the strength given to us by your Spirit to follow you, Jesus, to serve you, Jesus, to be the seed that goes into the ground like you, Jesus. It's for your glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so remember, um, last week was Palm Sunday. Even though it's November now, we had Palm Sunday redo. And Jesus there at, at the triumphal entry um, is at the peak of his fame. He's at the peak of his popularity. People are saying, Hosanna, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord. And he's coming in, they're praising him, even though they're doing it with a bit of ignorance. Um, but Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and people are, apparently, uh, they love him. But really, we know they're, they're more fans than followers. And these Greeks that show up in verse 20 are probably more like those uh, kinds of fans. They want to see Jesus, um, but Jesus makes a distinction here and says that that where if you serve me, then you'll be with me. They want to they want to see him. They don't necessarily want to serve him. Um, now these Greeks in verse twenty says there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These are uh, Greek speaking, religiously Jewish people. These are proselytes, probably. Um, in our midweek study a couple weeks ago, we saw Solomon's prayer as he dedicated the first temple. And in 1 Kings 8, um, I'll just go ahead and turn there actually, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43, Solomon prays this prayer about the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, where are we here? Verse 41. It says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. 
as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. That was Solomon's prayer, that the, the temple would be evangelical, that it would bring all nations to an awareness of the God of Israel. And of course, that was one of the purposes for Israel, being a peculiar, called-out people. They were to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. Um, and so, some of that had been fulfilled, a little bit. There were people coming from uh, other countries, Greek-speaking countries in this case, who had seen the greatness of God and converted to Judaism. But we know also that full Gentile inclusion into God's people would be ultimately unfulfilled until Pentecost. And then still, during this church age, we are occupying ourselves as best we know how to reach the unreached people groups, those other Gentiles, to bring them into the family of God. Uh, but the purpose of God moving in history through Israel wasn't only for Israel. It was for these other nations. And just like David and Solomon and the other kings of Israel, they, they fail in so many ways in which Christ will ultimately be successful. So the temple was a picture, it was a place of meeting with God. And it was a picture of something that would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Christ is our sanctuary. And, and so these Gentiles here, they're, they're an answer to Solomon's prayer. Um, but really, the, the fullness of that prayer won't be fully answered until Pentecost, when the Spirit would come, be poured out on all flesh, and a Gentile church is born. But here, uh, these Greeks are there for, for Passover. Um, they're to worship at the feast. And they want to hear about Jesus. And that, that's a good thing. Um, I don't want to be too hard on these people. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I hope you want to see Jesus. Um, but they're kind of swept up in, in the, uh, just the fervor of the thing. The enthusiasm of this celebrity carpenter. Uh, the celebrity rabbi from, from Galilee. And so they, they come uh, to Philip in verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They're so impressed with everything they've heard about Jesus, and everything um, they, they, they want to know about Jesus. They're curious, and they want to go see this one who heals the sick, who raises the dead. We know that a lot of Jesus' popularity at this point in time was because of the, um, the resurrection of Lazarus. And so having raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says his fame has spread far and wide, and these people want to see the guy who can raise the dead. So they, they go to Philip, and it mentions here that Philip is from Bethsaida of Galilee. Now on Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, same place, um, it, it's, a, it's a big lake. Okay, It's a big inland lake. And one side of it, leading, um, bordering up with the ten cities, the Decapolis, at this time was really a Gentile territory. Uh, this makes sense when you think of Jesus meeting the demoniac and then casting out the demons into what? Into pigs. Well, no good Jewish neighborhood would be full of pig farmers. Okay, there was a Gentile area of Israel, okay, and the, and the Decapolis, which butted up against one side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where all the pigs went in and then they drowned, right? And so it could be that these Greeks go to Philip because he's from Bethsaida, because Bethsaida's in Galilee, and Galilee has this Gentile kind of territory there. So it could be why they went to him. Maybe he spoke Greek. That could be as well. Philip is a Greek name. So the, on the request here, it appears to be good. I mean, don't you want to see Jesus? We're impressed with what Jesus can do also. 
Um, but you have to remember the, the larger context of this chapter and this specific Sunday of Jesus' life. There was an ignorant kind of worship that was being offered here. There are fickle crowds here. And we talked last week about how people want a small savior to save from small things, from small problems. And anything less than sin is really a small problem in the grand scheme of things. Jesus is a big savior who saves from big things. And we don't really have an indication that these Greeks that want to see Jesus want to be saved by Jesus at all. It's possible that they did. And if they did, if their hearts are in the right place, then they need only wait a few short weeks until Pentecost when the Spirit falls on all flesh. Jesus makes it very clear during his ministry that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Israel first, and then these Gentile nations. Um, but it seems that these, these Greeks are part of the fickle crowd that, that are caught up in the, the, um, the, the parade of the, the celebrity, and they're part of the fickle crowd that wants a small savior, if a savior at all. Now, I, I tend to think that they're part of that group, the, part, the group that you don't want to be a part of, partly because of Jesus' response. Now, we read this passage, you, you followed along, you heard me read this, and you had to have noticed that Jesus does not give them what they ask for. Excuse me, Jesus doesn't give them an audience, okay? It's not show and tell time with Jesus, where he says, yes, come, see me. That's, that's for the disciples after the crucifixion. Come, see, put your hand here, put your hand in my side, see my wounds. He's not doing that right now. Um, the implication, I believe, is that their request was not motivated by a worshiping heart. They were starstruck, but they're not worshiping. They want to see Jesus. They don't necessarily want to serve Jesus. So, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. The request makes it up the ranks uh, among the disciples. Philip and Andrew are seen together elsewhere in the Gospels. They're a team. When Jesus sent the 70 disciples out two by two, it was very likely that Philip and Andrew would have been paired together because we see them as kind of a, a team. And we see them as evangelists. They're, they're, they're bringing people to Jesus often. They like to bring people to Jesus. And they're a good example for us in that. But Jesus probably surprises them when he doesn't say, oh, great, I'm really glad that this whole Jesus movement is moving out into the Greek-speaking territories. Bring them on by. Maybe, they can, maybe I can send them out and we can spread this whole Christianity thing. I just coined that phrase just on the spot. I think it'll work. Uh, and we'll, we'll spread the message around. Jesus doesn't say that at all. It doesn't seem that Jesus allows himself to be seen by these Greeks. He, he says in st instead in verse 23, Jesus answered, them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Uh, now, that may not seem like that's really on topic. They could have said, what, what are you talking about? Or perhaps they misunderstood right away and saying, yes, it's time for you to be glorified by all the crowds, you know, shouting Hosanna. Now's the time to be glorified. You can become the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, like they say you are. Um, but Jesus saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, um, is what he's saying is these people that want to see me, they're going to get their chance, but it's not now. They're going to see me in my glory. 
Now, we, we think of Jesus glorified now, or in the Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps, you know, shining, bright. Um, but the glory that Jesus is talking about at this point, leading up to the cross, is his crucifixion. The glory of God in Jesus Christ is known to us, in part, through substitutionary atonement, the justification of sins through the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's glory. Okay, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but perishing, but for us, it's something else. We see the glory of God and the love of God poured out for sinners on the cross. So these people say, we want to see Jesus. We want to see the king. Is, you know, is he as good looking as the stories say? Is he as powerful? Can he really raise the dead? Maybe he'll do a trick. You know, they've got all those kinds of ideas, but Jesus says, oh, they want to see something. And the hour has come for them to see something. They're going to see glory. But you got to remember when Moses asked to see glory, and God said, you can't handle that. And, and the glory of God you know, through the cross is something that we just can't handle. We just can't handle it. We can't, it, it, we can't stay fixed on that vision. But Jesus is saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And unless, just in case you, you're thinking, well, glory, that means the resurrection, surely. That means, um, you know, the ascension. The hour is for him to be glorified in heaven, the king of the universe, right? But Jesus makes it very, very clear that the glory he's talking about, the, the, the doorway into that glory, the, the initial ingredient that's put in the pot to get this glory is, is death. The glory that they're going to be able to behold and that he's, he's saying, oh, the time has come. It's, he's talking about his crucifixion. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or much fruit. So there's that fruitfulness. And that's what we, we want to isolate glory by having it only mean the fruitfulness. And Jesus is saying, do they want to see me? Do they really want to see me? Well, it's time to show up in my glory. But do you know what the first part of that glory is? Do you know what the avenue to get to that glory is? It's crucifixion. They think they want to see him. But will they want to see a dead seed? Will they want to see a seed in the ground? Jesus, while he's alive, is still alone right here. Okay, the fruit of his ministry is not on Palm Sunday. That's not the fruitfulness. That's not the hundredfold. The time to bring Gentiles into the fold was not now. Uh, it was not through his celebrity. It was through the cross. So Jesus says, The time has come for me to be glorified, but glory doesn't look like you think glory looks like. The glory of bright shining as the sun and the glory of crown him with many crowns is preceded by the bitter glory of crucifixion. Death and resurrection. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Just as a seed goes into the ground and dies, its husk falls out, is completely transformed, and then a plant comes out of it to bear more, more seed. Death and resurrection is the central message of God. It's the central Christian doctrine. It's, it's death and and resurrection. There's no way around this. There's no shortcuts. There's nothing better. And in verse 24, when he, he says, 
unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. We know that uh, the, the it there is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the seed. Uh, we even say that, you know, he's the first fruits of those who, are fallen, who have fallen asleep. He's put into the ground, and then he comes up as the first fully resurrected new, pe new person. Uh, he's a new kind of person, a resurrected person. Um, and so the, the seed is Jesus. He would, he would allow himself and his fruitfulness to be buried in the tomb. The burial of Christ is part of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so he's saying, you know, I, unless I go to be buried, the real fruit will never come. The fruitfulness of this ministry that my Father has sent me on will never be born. I have to be buried. So we know that the, the seed is Jesus, but the seed is also us. And now there's many things like this in the Gospels. This isn't an isolated case. And Jesus says, you know, um, I am the light of the world. We know that he is the light of the world. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. We know Jesus is the only begotten son, and he's one of a kind. But also, we are sons and daughters. We were given the spirit of adoption. This is another time this has happened during filming, huh? All right, we're going to stop that. We've been given the spirit of adoption by which we call and cry out, Abba, Father. Um, you know, so, so we're sons. We're, we're following the example that Jesus sets forward. Jesus is the apostle, okay? He is sent by the Father. Um, but then he also sends us into the world to make disciples. So we're, we follow Jesus in his actions and we become like him in our identity. And this is one of those places where this is true. Jesus is the seed that's buried. But we also... We are seeds called to be buried. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, uh, Cost of Discipleship, he says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know, we, we, we sing that in the, the extra chorus that's been added to When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Um, but, but, but this is true. When, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What else could possibly be meant by Jesus' invitation, take up your cross and follow me? If this, if this isn't for us, if this seed identity is not for us, why else would Paul say, I die daily? Why would Paul write so much about putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13, and putting to death your members which are on earth, Colossians 3, verse 5. You are a seed. And Jesus here, he's not just saying, no, don't bring me any Gentiles. I don't want to talk to anybody right now. Visiting hours are over. He's saying, they aren't ready for, they aren't ready for this kind of glory. They want to see me, but they can't. The time is... The time is here for me to be glorified, but glory in that, that brand of glory is preceded by this kind of death. Now, Jesus makes it very clear that this isn't just for him. He says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then if anyone serves me, he's broadening this scope, not just talking about himself and his death and resurrection, which of course is the most important death and resurrection, but he is calling all men to follow him in this resurrection cycle of being a seed die, that dies to self and then by the Spirit is raised up to newness of life. 
Now read verse 25 again. Read it slowly this time. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that's a bit confusing. There is definitely a paradox here, and you can kind of take yourself around in circles chasing your tail if you think about it too hard. Uh, you know, because you're like, okay, if you love your life, you lose it. But if you hate your life, then you keep it, but you shouldn't want to keep it because you're supposed to hate your life. So if you hate it, you keep it. If you don't want it because you hate it, don't think about it too hard. Okay, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he said, whenever we feel there is something in Christian theology uh, or something odd, whenever we feel that there's something odd in Christian theology, we shall often find that there is something odd in the truth. Um, <laughs> because Christian theology is true. And there's a paradox here, um, but it's real. Remember, Jesus is talking about a hard path to glory, which is, is contrasted uh, against you know, the, the cheap path to temporal glory. He, seeking God's glory is good. Seeking life in the next life, excuse me, the next world, seeking eternal life for God's glory. This is good, um, but we seek that kind of life paradoxically through a death of self, a death of selfishness. And you read this and you say, well, okay, who loses their life? It's the one who, with clenched fist, holds their existence close without risk without reward, without a touch of surrender. That's like holding water in your fist. You can't hold it like that. You've got to hold it with palms open. That's how your life is. You think of a $100 bill held tightly, unspent, accomplishes absolutely nothing. Okay, 25 cents used to buy bubble gum accomplishes more than $100 that never, ever, ever gets spent. And lives aren't just lived. It's not just running the clock. Lives are spent. Time is spent and spent. That's a money word. You exchange it for things of value. Okay? Um, saving money without any intent on ever spending it. Jesus tells a story about a guy like that, right? So he's got all his barns and they're all full of his stuff. Okay, He's renting all the mini storages with all of his, his things. And he goes to bed at night thinking, ah, all my space is full of all my stuff and all my money. So the only thing to do is to tear down the barns and build new ones so that I can have more things. And Jesus calls that man a fool. Well, in this passage, he's not talking about money, uh, but he's talking about a life. And you can, you can treat your life in the same way as that stingy Scrooge of a man spends his money. Where you, you keep your time and your resources and your energies and you use it for yourself and you guard it closely and you don't spend it for the glory of God. And the same, the same response from Christ would be for, for that person as the one who wanted to build new barns. You fool. Your life may be required of you, and you will give an account. Lives aren't just lived. It's not running the clock. They are spent. You exchange your life for something of value. But if you just keep your life, if you love your life, if you hold on to it, just the mere thought of existence, and you just want to keep on living for you, okay, that's holding on to a $100 bill and not spending it. And 25 cents is worth more. It accomplishes more. Now, when, you're, when the purpose of your existence is to exist, <laughs> and that's it. Or if the purpose of your existence is to exist for yourself, 
You are essentially a power strip plugged into itself, okay? You are accomplishing nothing. And that's pointless. So how do we live in light of this verse in 25? How do we live hating our lives on this world? Um, how, how do we uh, value our lives in a certain way that where we, we disregard our life for the purpose of gaining true life or eternal life? Well, G.K. Chesterton, again, he says, you seek life with a furious indifference to it. And that's from a larger quote, and I'm going to read it to you because it's worth it. And every chance I get, I actually uh, go to this, this quote from his book, Orthodoxy. Um, and he's talking about courage here, but in light of this, this passage of loving your life and losing it or hating your life in this world and then keeping it, he, he says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Okay, it means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. Is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. This paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quiet, quite earthly or brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life, if we will risk it, if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier, surrounded by enemies, if he is cut his if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death. For then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. The person who embodies this more clearly than anyone I think in history is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth. For the joy set before him he despised the shame. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then he drank the cup to the dregs. Again, and this is a perfect example of, of Christ, this kind of courage. But this verse says, if anyone, if anyone serves me, he who loves his life, not me who loves his life, it's he who loves his life. Jesus is opening this up for universal application. We have a mandate now given to us by our courageous leader, to live our lives seeking true life, eternal life, the glory of Christ, real resurrected life, seeking that fiercely with also a fierce indifference to this temporal life, to the cares of this world that choke out the gospel. We don't care about those things. Jesus says, you know, don't fear the person that can kill your body. And you're like, well, what else do you fear? He says, you fear God. But but Jesus' answer, you know, or his, his lesson is, you know, the, the worst that someone can do to you in this life is kill you. And that's it. And if you think, well, that's pretty bad, then Christ offers a more broad perspective and says, it's really not. It's really not that bad. You seek life, but with a fierce indifference to the worldly life we live here. Fixing your eyes on eternity will prevent you uh, from from that worldliness that holds us back 
here. It will promote in you the fierce, fierce indifference to the temporal trappings of this life here. The fear of man that can only kill you. The cares of this world that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower that can choke out the seed of the gospel. Jesus says, this is the way to live. You, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life in this world, okay, that temporal worldly life, then, then you'll, you'll keep it for eternal life. Again, I, I say living your life is, is spending, just like money, you're exchanging it for something of value. Spending your life here, your temporal, worldly life, the mortal life here, spending that for eternal life is a good buy. This is a good deal. And there's another good deal coming. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now remember, remember the Greeks. They want to see Jesus. But do they want to serve Jesus? Jesus says, serve me. You know how you can do that? Follow me. Well, where is he going? To the cross. He's going to the cross. Now, it's not, again, it's not bad to want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. But if you want glory, and you want to behold the glory, you go to the grave first. You go to the grave first. If you want to save your life, then you let it be spent for Jesus. And if you want closeness with Jesus, then you serve him. It gets better. You follow him. Where? To the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what Jesus has been saying to his disciples ever since. If Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, you and I, we need to see that we are with Jesus in this equation. We are with him spiritually, and we need to strive to be with him in this practically. And I think the way to understand this most is from Romans chapter 6. So I'm going to turn there. I'm going to read you a passage from Romans 6. Because when Jesus talks about the seed, we know he's talking about himself, but there's application for us. And more than application, there's a spiritual reality that applies to us here. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. You were the seed. You were buried with him as a seed. All right, again, I'm going to start over. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's real. That's a real thing that applies to you. You have died with Christ. You have become the seed and you will be raised again. That your fruitfulness will only be fully seen in eternity, but that's okay because that's what we're working towards. That's where we fix our heart, our eyes. Now, that's a reality that you need to believe. You reckon yourself to be dead. You realize that you're the seed. 
But then there's marching orders in Romans 6 and verse 12. It says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Those are marching orders. It says, since you are the seed, since you've died, since you're you know, just hating by comparison, hating this temporal mortal life for the purpose of eternal things, then live like it and cast off these temporal mortal sins, these, these little uh, carnal desires that get in the way of the important things. Live like it. The person who's dead, who reckons themselves to be dead, they have nothing to, lo to lose. So we serve God, just as Jesus says in John 12, serve me and my Father will honor you. We serve him with all that we have, all the stops pulled out. We follow him with nothing in our way. Now, Jesus has shared some hard truths in this passage. Okay? He's, he's prevented these Greeks from seeing him because they're, they're not ready for it. They don't want to see him with, for the right reasons. But there's hard truths here. He says, unless a seed dies, it just stays alone. It's pointless. Okay? If it stays by itself, it's pointless. If it dies, it becomes worth it. If you spend the money then it has value. If you spend your life, then there's fruitfulness. If it just stays by itself doing nothing, then it stays by itself and does nothing. But that's a hard truth. So that's one hard truth. There's another one. If you love your life, then if you love it like an idol even, then you lose it. It's like holding water in your hand, grasping the wind. But if you hate your life, if you disregard this life, then you gain not only this life, and your life is full of purpose and meaning because you're serving the king of kings, but you also gain eternal life. It's a good buy. But loving your life or losing your life just because you love it and then trying to hate your life, that's a hard rule. Here's a hard one too. Follow me. Well, he's going to the cross. Do you really want to follow him there? Serve me, servants. Sir, that, that's humiliating for many. Serving? I, I want someone to serve me. Jesus says, serve me. That's where the honor is. Become the lowest. Become the last. So these are, these are hard things he's teaching his disciples, but they're not without rewards. There's a reason why Matthew 7.14 says that the way is narrow, and there are few who find it. Because the way is the way of the dead seed in the ground, of hating your life, of following Jesus to the cross, of becoming the servant. But that is not without glory. Remember how Jesus started. He says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And the seed that dies, it does bear much fruit. And, and that's a promise to us. You know, that loving, uh, loving your life or hating your life and, and losing it is, is hard, but hating your life and then gaining it eternal life, that's good. Eternal life is good. I want some of that. You know, following Jesus to the cross the cross doesn't sound fun, but he says, because where I am, there you're going to be. You get intimacy with Jesus when you follow him in his humility and walk in the way of the cross. That's glory. Intimacy with Christ. Serving is hard. It takes humility. It takes work. But you get honor from the Father. And guys, I want to reiterate this one point. It's worth the purchase. Serving Christ like this, in this kind of humility, with this kind of, of um, total and extreme surrender, the seed that gets planted is holding on to nothing. 
that kind of life, that kind of worship, seeking that kind of glory, is worth it. So we look to Christ who became the seed, and we realize that we are also seeds, following him not only to the cross, to the grave, but hoping for a total resurrection. So with that hope in our minds, let's pray. Jesus, we worship you, we glorify you, we love you. I pray that you would bless your church with this message. I pray that you would work these truths into our heart, give us the humility, the desire to serve, the disregard for the temporal things, so that we can have strong affections for the eternal things. And let this be done by your Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.